You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It is August 5th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, we've just spent a few uh, weeks going over the progress of insight, mainly focused on Vipassana practice. And so I thought we would flip it and focus on uh, the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes is often the way it's translated. One of the things about uh, the way that I've been uh, trained and teach this is that it's used as a, a way of developing concentration or furthering the development of concentration. And that it really is uh, about mind states rather than generating a feeling state in the body. Uh, so it's a jhana practice or a high concentration practice using the mind state or the view of uh, uh, any of the Brahma Viharas uh, as the object of meditation. The reason that I think that this is an important thing to do is that uh, many of us um, uh, came out of our early childhood conditioning with the capacity to identify views and recognize them. And uh, some of us even with agency to change uh, the view that we're holding at any particular time but that if you didn't have that uh, training when you were a child, that uh, it's something that it's useful to do now so that you develop that agency and, and you're not subject just to the, the winds of the mind moving from mood to mood without any real uh, agency in adjusting that. A mind state is uh, like a filter that appears between uh, ultimate reality and conceptual reality. This uh, touches into a lot of different uh, areas of interest, I think, in terms of understanding culturally where we are. Uh, you know, I'm talking to you from Los Angeles. I'm an American. I grew up here um, in the West, largely uh, our understanding of the nature of uh, perceiving reality is uh, or oriented in the early um, teachings of the ancient Greeks. Um, Aristotle thought, for instance, that we take in what's outside of us visually and we create an internal working model of that. And that the, the mind largely gathers an accurate representation of what's outside of us and creates an accurate working model internally, which we operate from. Um, I'm probably not remembering this right. My mind is saying Herac Heraclitus, but uh, thinking that's not quite right. Um, uh, there was some later adjustment to that idea, which was that if you had a strong emotional state, that could impact the way that you created the working model internally. But that by and large, we're taking data from outside bringing it inside and creating a working model and operating from that internal working model. This is very different in, than the way that the Buddhist thought has 
uh, characterize that. Um, in Buddhist thought, um, we take in uh, data from the outside, uh, we process that data and compare it to a perceptual database that we develop over our uh, lives, uh, create a working model internally that's based on our uh, internal conditioning or, or the uh, internal database, and then project that outward. And so that we are actually operating in uh, what appears to us to be the external world, which is actually something that we've created internally and projected outward. You can see that uh, there's a, a, a vast difference between these two uh, ways of conceptualizing how a reality is understood. So you have the capacity to sense, you have objects that can be sensed by the different sensing uh, gates. If there's contact between an object that can be sensed and a sense gate that can uh, detect that, then contact is made and a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. So you have a difference between awareness and consciousness. Uh, it's evaluated for processing speed uh, is it urgent? Does it need immediate attention? Does it not really matter whether we get to it? And uh, if it is, is it pleasant and do we have time to engage in a pleasant experience? This opens up a uh, further discussion, which is, I think, pertinent to the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes, which is uh, these two systems of positive and negative experience. Um, the brain science around processing time is pretty reliable. Uh, urgent experience requires half the intensity and about three-eighths of a second to process. Pleasant uh, experience requires a half a second uh, to process and needs to be twice uh, the intensity even to get into the queue for conscious awareness of that experience. So we're distinctly biased toward urgent or negative experience, and we have to intentionally develop the capacity to experience positive experience, or we may not get to it. The other thing to understand about this is that the negative experience or the urgent experience always jumps the queue, so that if you have a bias and a developed capacity to identify difficult or challenging experiences, you can push yourself into a place where that's all that ever gets into conscious experience, even though uh, positive or pleasant experiences are uh, available to you. Is that all making sense? So we want to begin to see the negative experience and the positive experience as two systems, each of which have, has to be developed independently. We need to uh, begin to uh, mitigate uh, an overreactive negative system, and we need to foster the development of a strong counterbalancing positive system. After it goes through vedness, the Pali word for that, um, feeling tones is often the English word, but that, that processing speed, uh, the unfixed unfixated, unattached, or non-attached uh, 
Uh, in Buddhism, non-attachment means that you don't uh, attach meaning to the raw sensing data. It's unfixated, it's vibratory, and, and it hasn't been defined. Different from attachment theory, which is about the connection between people. So uh, I, I, I just want to emphasize that because uh, I'm going to talk about attachment and I'm going to talk about non-attachment and they don't mean uh, the same thing. They're compared that uh, unfixated uh, sensing material that's been processed for uh, processing order uh, is compared to the perceptual database of previously experienced things. And if there's a close enough match between the raw data and entries in the database, then the meaning that's in the database is attached to the sensing experience. That is to say, the sensing experience fixates around the information from the database. If there's no information in the database that matches closely enough, then the imagination kicks in and tries to create an understanding of what the sensing experience is. Is that making sense? Between the, the pure sensing experience, the raw data, uh, we call that ultimate reality and conceptual reality, the thing that you make it into and project outward is where the view goes or the, the mind state goes. In some sense, you're filtering the uh, uh, ultimate uh, reality through the filter, and it affects the way that the um, conceptual reality is formed. The Buddha described this uh, with different metaphors. The, the one that I quite like is the metaphor of the mirror. Well, this uh, includes the understanding that we don't perceive things directly. We perceive them through our sense apparatus and the mind. We don't perceive things completely. We perceive things as a reflection of our conditioning and our preferences. So you have a touch, you have sight, you have uh, sound, you have a taste and smell, these basic sense gates, and you have mind. In the West, we don't really consider mind. Uh, this is again an Eastern idea. Uh, mind is the sensing of what's important to focus on, and it also collects the mind moments or the, the moments of focus, the snapshots of focus, the pieces that are then constructed into the perception of uh, our solid uh, reality. So it isn't like a scan of taking everything in and then creating an accurate representation of that. It's really just uh, grabbing up the things that are interesting or meaningful and then assembling a version of reality which really matches our preferences. Christian? Is there, is there a connection between uh, just because the words in English, uh, is there a connection between this mind as the sense gate and like the view, which we, which you refer to as the mind state? Um, mind is uh, as a sensing experience is different from view. Okay. 
Um, I have uh, sunglasses and I typically like to have a bronze lens on my sunglasses because when I look through them, it, it intensifies the color, particularly red uh, in the world around me. If I put on a pair of sunglasses, which is just neutral gray, there's no enhancement in that. Um, when we were kids, we had different goggles. One of them was bright yellow. Uh, and so on a bright sunny day, we'd wear a bright yellow uh, lens because it helped create contrast so that we could see, see the, the different uh, textures or levels of the snow easier. On uh, cloudy days, uh, we wore a different uh, um, lens color. I think it was green. Um, have you ever wore blue sunglasses or red sunglasses? Uh, do you notice how when you look through a colored lens, it changes the way that the landscape looks, but after a while you adjust to that change and you may even forget that you're wearing lenses that have some change into the way the world looks. And then when you take them off, the color balances is, are, are different. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's having uh, cataract surgery he had one eye done and not the other eye. And when he looks out the eye where the lens has been replaced, it looks quite gray uh, uh, or neutral in terms of the color balance. It looks like uh, you would think the world would look, but when he looks through the lens that hasn't been changed yet, there's a slight sepia to, to it and the colors are quite a bit richer than they are with the other eye. Uh, if you're not, uh, checking constantly to see how you're creating conceptual reality, you can slip into the belief that actually the way that you're uh, creating it is an accurate reflection of what's actually there. So the Buddha said that because we don't experience reality directly, we experience it as a reflection to the mind, you need to begin to pay attention to the quality of the mind that you're perceiving uh, the experiences that you're having through. And he described that as a mirror. So 2,600 years ago, a mirror was a bowl with a dark glaze on it that was filled with water. And so uh, he said that if the mind were equanimous, that is to say, if the water in the bowl were still and clear, the representation that was reflected off the surface of the bowl would have a, 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 a a um, accurate relationship to the experience that you were perceiving. But if the bowl were dyed a bright color, that is to say, if the bowl, if the mind were filled with lust or desire, it was as if the water were dyed a bright color. And so even though you see a, an image of the world reflected off the surface, the color balance is all different because it's, it's a much more vivid because of the state of the water or the state of the mind. Have you ever looked at somebody and thought they were the most beautiful person that you'd ever seen, uh, but then uh, notice a few months later that the glow had faded and they, they didn't appear that way? Um, have you noticed that sometimes you look at somebody 
they look beautiful, but if you're angry, they don't. Uh, so th that's the investigation. But it isn't like a one-time investigation. It's a training uh, of the mind to be constantly aware of what's actually happening. We know from studying uh, the brain and the way that the, the uh, mind forms and creates perceptions of reality that it's a very uh, energy intensive process and uh, the, 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 the body-mind system is always looking for ways to economize. And one way that it, uh, it economizes is by not uh, actively creating a new image uh, in, uh, in every time, in every moment. Um, <clears throat> have you ever lost your keys and uh, looked for them and then found them in a place where you already had looked? Just sitting there. It could be that you looked in that place, but the body-mind was using an old image of that, and so it didn't include the keys and the representation of it. And so when you looked there originally, they weren't there. Uh, and then when you came back later, the mind refreshed the view and then they were there. Uh, this begins to soften this uh, belief that we often arrive at, which is the thing that we're perceiving outside of ourselves is what's actually there and not really understanding that we take in the raw data, we form the idea of what's there, and then we project it outward. Uh, I have examples of this. I had a therapist um, and I went to his office and I sat on the couch where I'd, I'd sat uh, every week for years. Then I looked down and I said, oh, you got a new rug, it's beautiful. I really like it. And he said, yeah, I got a new rug six months ago. You've been here 20 times. This is the first time you're noticing that the, the rug is different. And so uh, it was the first time my mind actually took in the space as it was, rather than relying on an old image. And my other favorite one is, um, motorcycles with one headlight are nine times as likely to get in, to, uh, run off the road than motorcycles with two headlights. Motorcycles on a commuter route are more likely to be run off the road than on a non-commuter route. The most common response of a motorist running a motorcyclist off the road is, he wasn't there or they weren't there. Which uh, means, uh, and this is particularly true when you go to spaces that you've been in before, you don't update the view and so you're operating in an old projection. If you drive the same route back and forth, you're used to tracking for cars, but not for motorcycles. And so you could create an image of the, the space next to you that would be uh, from two weeks ago and make the move into the, the lane and uh, run the motorcycle that was there off the road because you didn't include it in or her in the making of the imagery. Christian. So when we do Vipassana meditation, um, are we training a particular view or some kind of neutral view or like, how would you characterize that as opposed to the Brahma Viharas? Well, um, 
you may be intentionally uh, generating a view uh, and tracking it, um, but most of the time what you're uh, doing is uh, generating a sensitivity to the sensing activity itself and then the the tracking the formulation of what's uh, what you make it into. Um, the reason that I like to use the Brahma Viharas as a way of uh, training view is because you make that the object of meditation, which is less uh, le less frequently taught in on the Vipassana side, at least in the in the the teachings that I've had. You know, you're the Eightfold Path, right? Right view is the first one to see things clearly the way that they are. Um, can you track emotion in the body? Uh, can you identify the sensations in the body which are emotional? And once you have identified a sensation in the body which is emotional, can you tell one pattern of emotional experience from another pattern of emotional experience? And if you can, how did you learn to do that? And if you can't, where was the absence of learning that you would have needed in order to do that? <clears throat> we are not born uh, with the capacity to do that. It's something that we learn and we typically learn it in the interaction with our caregivers. And this is also true of views, recognizing views and monitoring them. We learn them in relationship to our caregivers. They inquire of us what our view is, and then we have to identify the view and explain it to them. And if you had that happen to you over and over and over again throughout your early childhood in, into uh, your uh, uh, adulthood, then you can do it easily and you've always been able to do it. But if you didn't have a caregiver that was constantly inquiring uh, how your uh, how your mind were inclined, then you wouldn't. And the, the dialogue would be something like, I can't figure out what you're thinking. What are you thinking? Um, you seem really angry to me. Are you angry? You seem really sad. Are you really sad? Or, um, all those questions where you would have to then turn inward uh, and recognize what's actually happening in your internal state and then be able to uh, explain it to somebody else uh, is the process of which teaches you uh, to do that. Um, if you didn't have that experience, it doesn't mean you have a deficit. It means that you need to do the training in order to be able to do that. Uh, one of the things that's important to understand in terms of the long goal of this, which is liberation, is that you need to be able to recognize what a liberated mind is, and you need to be able to, to train the mind to hold that view. Um, so we often have moments where the view of the liberated mind arises, but if we can't recognize it, we don't know uh, that that's what's happened. And if we don't have agency to cause a particular view to arise and be able to sustain it, to sustain awareness of it, we aren't going to be able to uh, advance into that part of the practice. So uh, I, I often talk about these practices and practicing in this particular way as preliminary practices so that you have all of the capacities that you will need to then 
um, um, pursue uh, the ultimate goal of all of this, uh, which is um, liberation or freedom or enlightenment. Is that making sense? Sure. I have a question. Yeah. So if you could recognize that enlightened mind state 30 years ago, would it just be infrequent and you wouldn't have much agency about holding it or generating it? Um, I think that we all probably have had tastes of it or different moments of it, that it's fairly ordinary. What isn't ordinary is recognizing what it is and then having the agency to sustain it uh, continuously, which would be what the enlightened state would be. So that you, you're able to recognize the view, generate the view, hold the view continuously without interruption. That might be one definition of it. Um, okay. uh, does that fit your experience? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because it's. Uh, I feel like the. You know, I'm just wondering. One way to do it is to just get really good at recognizing it and generating it, and then right. practice practice in that way. And I think that's like kind of the two big splits in a lot of traditions is that it's it's always there. It's obscured. Right. The other ones, it's. Uh, you have to clean up and so. well the obscurations that that interfere with that i like the metaphor of it's there but it's cloudy <laughs> lightman is like the sun which is always there when it's up um, but then it's cloudy and so you can't recognize it um, so in that sense, it's always there. And the other sense, of course, is you're generating obscuration, so you'd have to learn to stop doing that. And then being able to sustain uh, uh, the mindset or have agency to change it. Um, Can't you just teach us a practice to generate and sustain that mindset? <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't that what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a long and roundabout way <laughs> um interesting one of the reasons i i like to talk about attachment um in all of this is because so much of the the interference that arises from uh, not having enough support in order to actually do that, particularly as householders in the West. Um, uh, how do you uh, create a life where the time, energy, and resources that are necessary to pursue a deep practice are available to you? Um, how do you... Uh, have the emotional regulation support in particular uh, to practice deeply um, because sometimes it you touch into areas that are very difficult to to be with um, can you then set up that secure base those few relationships that you need that will will support you in doing this and that if you can't do that 
then uh, what begins to happen is that you're unwilling to take the risks in your practice to actually see the things that you need to see because it's too uh, disturbing, too dysregulating. And so you begin uh, a, a kind of subtle process of limiting the explorations in your practice uh, so that you, you can manage it in a way that's, that makes it possible to do, which is one of the reasons it, 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 it may take so long to do. Um, but then, I, I mean, I, I do uh, speak to monastics who've been in, in monasteries for, for, for decades, and they're not necessarily further along than householders are. And they have a lot of the same issues coming up in terms of being able to find support to, to take those risks, and then they get caught up in the, the ordinariness of operating uh, a monastery, the ordinariness of living in a human body that needs to be maintained in the way that it needs to be ma maintained in the same progression of aging that happens. Um, And then the conundrum of even if you do get far, far down the path and see these things clearly, you're still in a human body, which still has all of these requirements in order to be uh, supported, um, still needs to feel connected and fed and rested. And, um, So, the way that I typically teach Vipassana is in a meta, meta Vipassana format. Meta is a Pali word, which is often translated as loving kindness, which in the Theravada tradition is the first of the Brahma Viharas. There are four of them, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka, uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Uh, understand that they, they work in concert with each other, uh, and they are uh, applied to different kinds of suffering states. The uh, antidote to anger or hatred, hatred is the extreme form of anger, is loving-kindness practice. The near enemy of loving-kindness practice is sentimentality. So we talk about the far enemy and the near enemy. The near enemy uh, is a, a thinking process, uh, not actually holding the mind state would be the way that I would describe that. So in uh, an active metta process, you want to be in the experience of the present moment, holding the mind state of loving kindness. Karuna is translated as compassion. Um, the near enemy of compassion is sympathy, because compassion is an empathetic experience where you're actually exchanging feeling states with someone else. So for you to be in a compassionate space with somebody, you're also in an empathetic space. And that typically means that they have to be there for you to connect to Christian. So if I'm 
if I'm sitting and doing meta practice, I feel like I'm able to attain the meta mind, even if there, I assume there's some kind of relational component to meta in practice. But when I'm doing the compassion, the Karuna practice, if I'm, if that relational component is really key to it, am I really entering into the Karuna mind state when I'm doing the practice sitting, sitting at home? Well, you can hold the mind state, but to be in the activity of it, you would need to be exchanging an empathetic uh, experience with someone else. So in the formal practice of compassion, you train the mind to hold the mind state of, uh, of compassion, which is really the willingness to uh, be connected to the suffering experience of someone else. The untrained mind naturally recoils from suffering. And so if you were to empathetically connect to somebody and they were filled with suffering, you might disconnect and withdraw from them uh, reflexively, where with the training of the mind state, you hold the mind state of compassion, which allows you to connect and hold the suffering experience of someone else. The far enemy of, uh, of um, Compassion is cruelty. And that's one of the ways that we disconnect from the suffering experience of someone else. We devalue them or blame them for their suffering experience uh, so that we don't have to uh, uh, allow the empathetic experience and experience that suffering uh, firsthand. Um, mudita is often translated as sympathetic joy and that's where you have a sense of joyfulness i like to use the word delight because it's part of the attachment constellation you're delighted that someone else is doing well in pursuing something that has meaning to them whether it directly benefits you or not the near enemy is rooting for somebody because uh, you get a direct benefit from their success so the, one of the examples early on when I was learning this uh, was that you go to the ball game and you root for your team to win and you feel a sense of joyfulness when they do. Um, but if they don't win, you don't have the same sense of joyfulness. Uh, and so you're actually uh, rooting for an outcome rather than rooting for them to succeed at something that's meaningful to them. And then equanimity is this balance. Uh, in the Mahayana tradition, equanimity is first and then the others come after. Um, but in the Theravada tradition, the equanimity is last. Uh, and so that's where you hold a sense of balance. It has to, uh, one of the things that's um, sometimes confusing to people who's, who sit with Shinzen is that he uses equanimity uh, in a way that is not the same as the equanimity of the Brahma Viharas. And so it's important to hold that distinction. Uh, and the empathy of the Brahma Viharas is around understanding the nature of karma uh, and understanding that you, uh, as the uh, person who intends and takes the action, um, uh, are the inheritor of that karma and that you, as somebody who doesn't take that intention and action 
cannot interfere with that uh, process of uh, karma. So when we work with mind states as the object of meditation, we want to understand that we generate a particular mind state like a filter or a view. And in holding that view, ultimate reality as it's translated into conceptual reality is infused with that quality. So uh, in the, the metaphor that the Buddha used, if the mind is filled with desire, the image is vividly colorful in a way that it wouldn't be if you were a quantumist. If the mind is filled with anger, it's as if the water in the bowl were boiling. Uh, anger is a particularly distorting view to hold in terms of the experience of things. If the mind is filled with sloth and torpor, it's as if the water were muddy. If the mind is filled with restlessness and agitation, it's as, as if a breeze were blowing across the surface of the water, distorting the image. And if the mind is filled with skeptical doubt, then it is as if the water were, uh, um, no, the water were muddied with skeptical doubt and overgrown with algae, with sloth and torpor. So um, we can then add to this, these views of the Brahma Viharas, is the mind filled with loving kindness? Is the mind filled with compassion? Is the mind filled with a joyfulness at somebody doing well? Uh, is the mind equanimous in the sense of the view of understanding the nature of karma. And then I also like to talk about it in terms of attachment views is the mind securely attached in the moment is the mind preoccupied in the moment is the mind in a dismissing frame is the mind in a disorganized frame. And that uh, we begin this uh, exploration uh, to understand um, how mind states uh, change the view and really what we we do to explore this is begin in conceptual reality uh, with a view and uh, conceptual reality without a view and begin to uh, to notice how particular views change the nature uh, of the appearance of uh, conceptual reality that all making sense at least conceptually so then we want to begin this practice. Um, one of the things about the way that we store and uh, generate uh, the experiences from the perceptual databases, which is filled with these little things, these little algorithms called gists, is that when we think of something, the gist is activated and it plays out in the same sense gates as was originally recorded. And each time you uh, generate a, 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 an experience from a gist, it's re-remembered and stored in a gist. Uh, and so one of the ways that metta practice develops is that you draw into consciousness and hold the awareness of the, of the experience of the present moment with the view. And then when that's remembered, that view is also uh, included as part of the the memory. One of the ways that we develop positivity is by holding positive states and then remembering them. And then the next time we remember that experience, it's infused with the positive state. And the more often that we do that, the more um, uh, uh, in, uh, the stronger the, the positive state is when it's recreated. 
This is particularly important in working with the experience of self, particularly if you have a, a negative bias towards self. Often when uh, self is generated, uh, if there's an afflictive emotional experience attached to it, when it's remembered in order to recreate the experience of self, part of that afflictive state needs to be generated. And if you have a lot, a strong association of afflictive states with the experience of self, each time the sense of self arises, you have an afflictive experience and you can begin to develop an aversive response to that. Uh, and so to counteract that, we want to strongly associate positive states with a sense of self so that each time the sense of self is generated, the, the dominant experience of that is positive. Is that making sense? But we start usually with somebody who's easy. Um, that is to say, uh, what we mean by that is that when you think of them, the dominant experience of creating them in consciousness is positive. And in particular, a, a loving kindness. So, um, the Sayadaw uh, Indica, who we study with in Myanmar, says uh, that it's always cool. So it's a cool mind state. There's an absence of moha, an absence of loba, so an absence of desire, and an absence of an anger that comes from frustrated desire. Uh, it's um, there is no English word, which is why we have uh, trouble describing it uh, in English. Loving kindness is a hyphenate. Um, I tend to think of it more as a kind, friendly, open-hearted curiosity because it's inclining towards something. It's not passive. But that would be using the definitions of my family system. And so you're going to have to explore this. Uh, an absence of the heat of desire, an absence of the heat of anger, uh, an openness, uh, um, an, an interest, uh, that's the mind state. And so we wanna generate that and hold it. So we're gonna do an easy person tonight looking for somebody who is, um, when you think of them, the mind naturally inclines toward that state and then holding or intending the practice for them uh, so that uh, you can then explore what a view is and then also um, have uh, somebody reliable to generate it with. When we were in Myanmar, we spent three days with this and he had us go through everyone we know or everyone we knew to see whether they were a good choice or not, because he wanted us to develop a short list of reliable people so that you're out in the world, you notice the mind is angry. You can just think of somebody on your short list to incline the mind toward uh, loving kindness. Any questions before we begin? Lucia? Can you talk a little louder? I'm having trouble hearing you. Yeah. Um, if people are troublesome, um, some teachers recommend thinking of animals. Do you have any 
um, suggestions or thoughts about that? Um, I think you do want to be eventually able to do people, but start wherever you are uh, and uh, learn um, the mind state. Uh, however you get there is totally fine, I think. In the traditional Buddhist practice, um, animals are not considered sentient beings. And uh, in order to come into a high concentration state, you have to practice for a sentient being and you have to practice for somebody who's alive uh, so that the, the, um, so that the intention to radiate the loving kindness radiates it to them, they get it, and then it, they reflect it back. Um, but begin uh, in a way that, that's, uh, that works. I think we lost. No, maybe not. All right. Let's begin. So how did that go? Good enough. So over the next weeks, we'll, we'll cover compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, um, and then move through some of the other stages, self, uh, other, uh, a close person, and then uh, friends and family. That's probably as far as we'll get. Um, thank you for coming. We have some things coming up. Saturday, we have the third day of the level one series. Um, uh, two weeks from Saturday, we have the meditation and attachment for uh, relationships, which is about collaborative uh, relationship skills. The first three day longs of the level one cover the first two pillars of the three pillar approach for attachment repair. Uh, so the ideal parent figure, the um, mentalizing, uh, and uh, part of the psychoeducation around attachment. And then the fourth one is really focused on the, the third pillar, which is the collaborative relationships piece. Um, we, do, we do have a level two that's opening up in September. Uh, I think that's half full at this point. And then we have uh, an in-person meditation retreat in December, and there are 10 spaces left in that. So if you're interested in that, uh, take a look at it. They're all on the website. Um, I offer this class on a, a Donna basis, and that, what that means is I just offer the teaching. But I do hope that you'll uh, make a donation. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find a link to make a donation on our website. Thank you for coming, and uh, I look forward to seeing you somewhere on the path uh, uh, soon. Bye.